Hello and welcome to the latest and greatest episode of the Quadcast. I'm John McAlevey. For those of you who are new to the experience, the genesis of this podcast dates back to October 1992, when on my very first day of therapy, the following lyrics cut through all of the noise in Jim A. at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange, New Jersey, quote, I don't care about no wheelchair. I've got so much left to do with my life, end quote. Those 16 words spoke to me because I was 24 years old was seated in a wheelchair, and still had so much left to do with my life. The lyrics come from the obscure song Black Gold from Soul Asylum, and they became my mantra in the gym, during downtime, and quite frankly for the past three decades. It is apropos that this song begins and ends each and every episode of this podcast, which although mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, but is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. So how's everybody been? It's been a while since we had our last show. I do hope that you had the pleasure, and I do mean pleasure, of listening to that show starring the great Hannah and Jared Nieder. If not, I hope you'll look for it on one of the following podcast hosts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can always keep up with the Neaters on their Instagram page, which is Positively Paralyzed. They are always up to something. And speaking of being up to something, my booking staff has been just that. And by booking staff, I mean, well, me. So you'll have to stick around until the end of the show to hear what I've got brewing. What do you say we get moving with today's episode? As we all know, spinal cord injuries come in all shapes and sizes. No two are really ever the same. And the same goes for how survivors view theirs and how and if they choose to speak about them. My guest today, Kelsey Peterson, chose a very unique way to chronicle her journey after sustaining an SCI from a diving accident into Lake Superior in 2012 at the age of 27. She starred in an autobiographical film. It is a documentary called Move Me. And it moved me so much that I asked, well, invited, okay, let's face it, I begged her to come on and tell me all about the entire process. And luckily for us, following this PSA from the good folks at Canine Companions, Kelsey Peterson will do so. And that, my friends, is next. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a canine companions for independence assistance dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of loving care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability.
Welcome back to the show. I must add, coming out of that commercial, please do check out canine.org. The Canine Companions organization is amazing, and I have a wonderful, friendly, furry, fabulous four-legged friend at my feet. His name is Yoke, and he's my service dog. He's been with me a little over a year now, and I just can't say enough good things about him and the organization. So please do check out canine.org. And now for the business at hand today. It is my honor and pleasure to introduce the aforementioned Kelsey Peterson. Welcome, Kelsey, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. We have gone around and around trying to put this together. I know you're a very busy woman and uh, schedules are hard to match up with, but uh, we're able to do it today. And you're telling me that of all things you're having out there is a snowstorm. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm so over it. But here we are, mid-April. <laughs> Let's get it done. Put those snowshoes away. We want to get on with spring. I know, but uh, it had to do it. You know, it had to like just let you know it's not quite done yet. That's like it right. does every year. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Well, Kelsey, what I like to do with all of my shows is I like to begin at the beginning. And so why don't you tell us where did you grow up and what were some things that you liked doing as a young person? So I grew up kind of around Minnesota. I started out in the suburbs in Hopkins in the Twin Cities. Um, and then we moved around a little bit. I moved, I uh, lived up north and we built onto our cabin, which was really cool, um, on a lake. So I grew up loving being outside and being outdoors and doing water sports, you know, like driving boats. And um, I have two older brothers and a younger sister. So we were always really active and wrestling and like, you know, just getting in the dirt and getting crazy and I um I danced my whole life and played basketball and um I eventually went to college for dance and yeah so I've kind of always I grew up around Minnesota but and I went to school in Montana but I'm a I'm a Midwest gal for now anyway <laughs> a tomboy is a kid it sounds like sports and and wrestling around in the dirt with your uh, brothers and all of that good stuff, outdoorsy stuff. Yeah, yeah, just getting after life, you know. Yeah. I, I think that whole tomboy thing is is becoming more like just for anybody now, you know, yes. which is nice to see. Like, it's a, nice, it's a nice shift. Yes, it is. Very cool. And you mentioned dance. Tell us about how did that start? Did that start as a, as a young girl? And then uh, you, you, did you major in that in college, you said? I did, yeah. So I started dancing when I was like five. Um, and I did modern and um, when I was in, I started doing modern dance when I was in high school. Um, but I grew up doing like studio jazz, tap and ballet and um, competing. And then I went to the arts high school, Perpich, it's called in um, Golden Valley, Minnesota, which was fantastic. Like it's a state funded high school but you can live there if you live far enough away and you have an art area so like your morning is all academics but like cool academics like I took Shakespeare and like you know foreign film class and then the second half of your day is your art area so I was really lucky to like have sort of like a head start on modern dance in that way and then I went to the University of Montana and I was like I don't know what I want to do I'm still a kid so I just right. like I, I guess I'll just keep dancing like that was kind of the constant in my life that helped me like stay connected to myself and to others. Absolutely. And it just made sense. Yeah. 
Now, how about after graduation? What was the goal? Did you have, um, did you want to continue with the dance, maybe open up a studio and that kind of thing? Or do you want, did you want to try and dance professionally? That's interesting. Well, that answer is a little, probably what you wouldn't, I needed a break after college. Honestly, I was like burnt out on dance. I'd kind of like lost my love for it. And I think that happens a lot when you, when you're not able to like really be real with where you're at, with your creativity and your artistry and your relationship to what you're doing. And I kind of felt like I was like forced to finish college and I wasn't really digging the scene at that time. So I took a break and traveled and bartended and um, got my yoga certification. And then I fell back in love with dance when I was able to, you know, come back to it on my own and, and more than I ever had loved it, I think. Um, and I wanted to start it. I was actually starting a dance company, um, with my best friend and then I got injured. Sure. (laughs) Sure. Well, that leads us into, um, you know, your situation. Why don't you, can you tell us, you know, the circumstances of the day that changed your life? Yeah. So it was, um, the 4th of July, 2012, and I was living on Madeline Island in Wisconsin. It's on Lake Superior or in Lake Superior rather. Um, it's part of a archipelago of 22 islands. It's really beautiful. And, um, that's where I live right now. And I was bartending and, you know, total party animal. Um, (laughs) and I went out after bar clothes, you know, and, super sauce and went out on the, the boat with my friends and it was just a really beautiful like kind of eerily still night for Lake Superior like I just remember the water being like glass and we pulled up like offshore one of the other islands called Long Island and it's really shallow really far out mm. which I knew but I was drunk and stoned and Yep. You know, surfed down under the full moonlight. Sure. And I think just the magic and I was intoxicated kind of by everything, you yep. know. Um, and I just dove in, wasn't thinking. And right away knew I had paralyzed myself. Like, I, my head hit the sand and I couldn't move. And I kind of just surrendered in that moment. Like, okay, this is how I'm going to die. Yeah. Um but I didn't. My friend saved me, flipped me over, and called an ambulance and told them. They were like, go to Bayfield. And we're like, no, we're going. He was, he was very adamant, like, that's a terrible idea. I'll meet you in Washburn, <laughs> which I loved. Like, I was like, yeah, like, you tell him. <laughs> that's right. You know, like, he was just like, I'm the captain, and that's a much longer ride. And it was just like this really, like, badass moment where I was like, okay, I'm in good hands. I'm going to be okay. Yep. And the EMTs were wonderful and got me into the, out of the boat, into the um, ambulance and drove the 90 miles or whatever it is to Duluth. And I spent the next three months there. Wow. So I'm a C6. Okay. So I don't have function or sensation. I'm complete. So I don't have function or sensation from the chest down. Um, and then my fingers, my hands don't work. I don't have forearm flexion mm-hmm. and I don't have triceps. Okay. Where yeah. did, uh, did you have surgery? Did they do any stabilization or anything like that? 
Yeah, I had, um, they actually did like an anterior um, fusion. So they went in like the front of my neck, kind of above my collarbone. Yeah, I had the same thing as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. wild, right? Which also ruined my speaking, my singing and speaking voice. Oh, no. So that's been an interesting journey because I grew up singing with my dad and I love singing. Oh, Um, jeez. I know, but I'm I'm on a new journey with that right now, which is really exciting. Okay. yeah. And Kelsey, where, yeah. uh, after the surgery, where did you do your rehab? I started in Duluth for three months and then I went to Courage Kenny in Minneapolis and I lived there for three months as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's amazing. Um, my injuries was back in 1992. What year was this that yours was? 2012. 2012. Okay. Well, I, I work now at Kessler where I did my rehab. And when I was first there in 92, um, I was there for, I think, four months, almost five months for my rehab. I have to tell you now, we have folks who have had serious, serious spinal cord injuries, some who are on ventilators who are there for maybe three weeks, maybe four weeks tops, and then they're out. I don't know how, A, they come to grips with it mentally in that short of a time frame, but physically, I mean, they're just not ready to go, but with insurance kicking them out and uh, the stays are just so short. I I don't know how I could have done it in such a short time. It's so, there's so many flaws in that system, you know, we're just such a like, it's, it makes me so angry on so many levels when it comes to like acute care yeah. and care work. Like, I just think it's a direct reflection of how we value human beings, especially people with disabilities in our aging population, mm-hmm. you know, without a doubt. like we're just like, get them in, get them out. They're a burden on society. Like let's make them consumers again in some way, you know, like yeah. it's, yeah, I'm really lucky that I was able to stay in rehab as long as I was. Sure. How important, yeah. Kelsey, were your were your family and friends to your recovery and your rehab? I know that uh, luckily for me, where I did mine um, was about two miles from where I grew up, my home. So all of my friends, my buddies would come out of New York City every weekend and we would take over the rotunda. There'd be about 15 guys watching college football, screaming the F word at the TV set, you know? And then, uh, so did you have uh, a good support system with family and friends and how important were they? I did. And yeah, I mean, as you know, it's crucial. You know, I, I see, I, I lived in a subsidized, um, accessible building in Minneapolis. And I saw so many people who didn't have the support system that I did. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot harder to not have that love and connection in your life and still be able to find yourself and like brighten your spirits and, um, feel a sense of self-worth and and just to have the support to like to get out into the world a lot of the time you know in an inaccessible world and do things and see things like my mom for example has like made it possible for me to live like especially in the beginning you know I didn't have my care work down and we just didn't know a lot of what we were doing like she would just she was down with whatever like we went on trips together we, she helped me do a lot of things that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. And yeah. I think it's like that, that kind of fierce and graceful love from her was like what made it possible for me to move forward in a lot of ways. Yeah. And also like on my terms too, it wasn't like she wanted me to heal a certain way or grow a certain way. Like she was just going to show up for me 
and encouraged me, but like she wasn't going to judge the way I was moving through this profound adaptation, Yeah, you know? And so, yeah, the people in your lives are like, they can make or break it, you know? Like, and it's also like this whole shift, I think, in how people like heal with you and perceive you. Yep. Like, are they gonna want you to be who you are or are they going to show up for who you are as you are right now? Yeah. That's deep. Right? I never thought of it like that. Yeah. That's really deep. I had, uh, one of my best buds, a guy that I grew up with that, uh, we played little league together. We go back to like eight, nine years old and he was with me from day one. You know, he would, he was laying in the other bed in, in the acute care hospital with me and was there for, uh, me through my rehab. Um, and he was also became my travel buddy. I had a roommate from college who played 10 years in the NBA. So he was all over the place. So my, my friend Robert and I would, he would come with me. He was my travel companion. I really couldn't go on my own. And there we are like at halftime at, uh, at the United center in Chicago. And he's got a catheter. He's putting the catheter in me and helping me out in that respect. I mean, just, Hell yeah. yeah. I mean, it didn't even think it would, didn't even face him. He, he would, I was his friend and he, he had a, you know, just a great affinity. We had a great friendship and he knew that we wanted to go and have fun and the things right. that people will do for you. It's, uh, it's above yeah, and it's beyond. Like, okay. This is what we're doing now. Like, this is our reality. This is how we live now. Exactly. And this is how we're in relationship together. Exactly. And also like they, I think those people are able to like shift how they perceive you and they still see your value. Right. You know, absolutely. Like, even though you're not going to be the friend that's like coming over to do, to move furniture for them or like, <laughs> you know, help them move out or whatever, you're going to be the friend who's going to listen and you're going to be there in so many other ways. And I think that's super beautiful and um, just invaluable to have those people like get it in that way. It's true. It's true. And so now what is the plan now, Kelsey? You've just had this profound change in your life. You've done your rehab and um, what is the plan now? What are you thinking about doing with your life? Oh man. I mean, I've been doing it. This, I'm like 10 years in now and I started making a film um, five years ago, six years ago almost. Yep. Um, and it was released on PBS. So I'm like, just trying to like build off of that momentum and the gifts that that's given me, like that whole filmmaking process was very therapeutic. And Absolutely. I learned a lot about what it means for me to be a woman with a disability. And um, that's been like very empowering. And I love how I can share my story and help people. And also in the process, help myself figure some shit out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've been speaking, um, like screening the film and, and speaking to audiences, which I absolutely love. And, um, I have a couple other films that I'm working on right now that are kind of like 
between production and pre-production. Awesome. Yeah, let's get into yeah. that. I wanted to to bring that in. What I meant by the question is right after your accident, like in, in, what what you were thinking. I know. Oh, like okay, we're yeah, back bef- in. Yeah, before yeah. you were going to do maybe the dance studio with your friend, and then now you have this yeah. horrendous thing happen. Uh, what the goal was there, but yeah, now that you brought up the 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 documentary, it's called Move Me, and. I must tell my audience, I watched it and it moved me. Let me tell you that. Um, it was amazing. So first of all, where did, where did the idea for that come up? Uh, whose was it? And then how hard was it for you to be so open and honest? I mean, candid, raw, whatever word you want to use, it's all uh-huh. in there. And it's, it's, it's really profound for, for the viewers. I, I urge you to get a, get a chance to see it. Oh, thank you. Um, it started out as an innocent road trip. And then my friend was like, why don't we film it? And everything kind of took off from there. And at that time, I was five years post-injury. I was very much wanting to get a picture of what was happening within uh, like the cure climate, the research climate, um, like what was happening for functional recovery? What were my options or our options? How were we collectively healing um, as the SCI community. Like, what were people doing? How were they living their lives? How were their family members doing? So we went around the country for three months and, and stayed with strangers who became friends and interviewed them and interviewed researchers. And um, then we went back with all this footage. And, you know, we had no idea what we were doing. We were doing what we were having fun, and it was great. Um, but we didn't get the footage that, and the quality of footage that we needed and the story that we needed. Like, we just didn't know how to, like, capture documentary well enough yet. Right. And so we started working with a fabulous editor named Eli Olson, who I just adore. Um, and she was like, guys, the film you think you're going to make is not here. Mm-hmm. And we were like, shit. Um and so that was a really hard moment because, you know, you put in all this time and this work and you raise all this money and you're faced with your own limitations and your own fuck ups. And that's fine. But yep. we had to like surrender to the reality that this wasn't the film that wanted to be told yeah. either. Yeah. Um, the story that wanted to be told. And so at the same time, my dear friend, Gabriel Roderick, who's a C6, C5 quad, um, a musician, he approached me about doing a cripples dance, uh, which is a live music and dance production, um, with, it's an interabled company. So they're able-bodied and disabled people in it. And Gabriel wrote all the music. He's incredibly talented and just a gorgeous human being. Um, he was great to get to know in your movie. I loved him. I know. I love him. And his father. So, I think the audience is really, yeah, him and his dad are like, everybody just loves him oh, and his dad. That one scene, I, I want to talk to you about that shortly, but go on. Um, so Gabriel asked me to do a cripples dance and choreograph it, um, which I hadn't done yet. I was like, I had shelled dance, you know, and put it in my past. Sure which we can talk about why and how and all that later mm-hmm. if you want. But, mm-hmm. and then my dad got sick and David Darrow came into my world as a potential option with his East hand trial to do an electronic stimulation implant. So I was juggling like these three things that kind of all popped up at the same time that we realized this film's not here. And so 
I was just like, all right, I have to step into this vulnerable place and tell this story because clearly this is what needs to be told. Yeah. This process of becoming disabled and finding myself again and what it's like to live this way, my reality, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the truth of like juggling. Like, I think we often have these like dualities in life and life's just not that simple. It's not that black and white. Like, and not everything is good or bad. Yes or no. Um, and I was like juggling, you know, hope and acceptance and trying to like find this graceful dance with those things Yep. in order to like just live my best life really. Absolutely. How was the film shot? I mean, was it, was it a big crew that you had? Was it, you know, with those big cameras that you see? Was it with, with <laughs> iPhones? I mean, how did it all come together? It started out a little more humbly, um, and then um, I started working with Daniel Quine, who had been connected to us through, I was working with my friend Madeline Brown, who produced the film um, for the first couple years with me, um, and a mutual friend connected us with Daniel Quine, who ended up co-directing with me, mm-hmm. and we just kind of naturally created a a friendship and it grew into him stepping into co-director position with me, which was what I really needed and what this film really needed. And he knew, you know, he was a much more seasoned, he had a successful series called the perennial plate and he'd done a lot of um, film work, commercial work and documentary before. Right. Um, so he knew like, you know, who to hire that had a really nice camera and was making beautiful work and getting hired, you know, um, and how to produce and how to do all of these things that I just didn't know. And so in that way, it was like this really great partnership because I was able to like bring my authenticity and like my story and, and the disability perspective, which he didn't know yep. and make sure, you know, that nothing was about us without us. Um, and he was able to bring his, you know, talent and his expertise and his experience. So, yeah, there were, there was usually, it was a small crew that like, we usually would have one, maybe two cameras mm-hmm. at one time and maybe a sound person. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone really created this like container of like, just like care and safety sure. to the, be vulnerable and authentic. And now from, from day one until, um, you wrapped filming and editing and all of that. Um, how long did that take? About five years. Wow. You're kidding. That mm-hmm. was a five year span. Oh my goodness. Which is kind of average for a first time filmmaker. Okay. Actually. In documentary film, yeah. Yeah, because a lot. And you have to follow the story, too, you know, so it takes time to, like, let things unfold. Sure, a lot went down. For those of you that have not seen it yet, there's a lot that's in there. Um, And you mentioned about your friend Gabriel and and his writing of music, and he wanted you to do the choreography. Now, as a dancer, someone uh, that you said has been dancing since you were, like, five years old, how challenging was it to put a dance routine together that, a, you couldn't do yourself and that you couldn't actually show the dancers exactly what it was that you wanted. Um, that must have been tough. I know I coach basketball uh, for young, uh, I have eighth grade basketball players and 
I can't get out there and show them exactly what I want. I know what it is that they need to do and I can't do it perfectly. And it drives me crazy sometimes. So did you run into that? Like the part of you, the dancer in you that just couldn't convey exactly what it was you were looking for? Yeah. I mean, there were definitely those challenges for sure. I had to really be in a, in an honest place of like, okay, what works with my body now? What feels good? Um, what do I feel like I can shine in? And also I think it like required a much more, um, like a deeper intimacy mm-hmm. and in like how you choreograph and how you, how you storytell, you know, how you tell them, convey the message. Sure. And in that way, I love that, like my disability has brought that perspective a little bit more profoundly to me like I've always loved being a storyteller and using dance to do that but Mm -hmm. I think this has been like okay I have to step in a little bit deeper here and like really lean into the like nuances of my movements to like convey my reality and my message and I, I in that way I also love how collaboration is because like I'm working with all different bodies and I might be the lead choreographer, but it really is a collaborative process because, you know, Leah or Rachel who are able-bodied, I'm going to have to ask them like, Hey, how let's work together to translate this into your body. Mm. Like I'll give you a movement and you can see how I embody it. But then I want you to play with how you incorporate your legs or your, what level you're doing at it at or your trunk or whatever, you know? And mm-hmm. so in that way it was really fun to just like celebrate our differences in that way and work together. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Now, is there anything that, that you still do now dance wise that still feels like the old Kelsey that was dancing as a five-year-old and, and are there things that you're oh. still good at that you can, uh, still bring out to, uh, elicit reactions from people that come to your shows? Yeah. You know, I feel like I, I get a lot more emotion out of people. I feel like I'm, I'm able to, I still feel like a dancer. I still feel, I never stopped feeling like a dancer. Mm-hmm. That never went away. And, but I did stop thinking I could be a dancer because I'd had, I put myself in this box of like able-bodied perfection, you know, which I, they, you know, you're in front of a mirror your whole life. And we live in a culture that like elevates and the able body. And so like, I really had to start to work on unraveling my own internalized ableism, honestly, and, Mm -hmm. and work through my own grief in order to be able to abstract my idea of who I was as a dancer. And I still feel like, and I get so many comments about how people see me and, and, and appreciate what I do and, and think it's beautiful. And that's so wonderful to hear. And it's also just wonderful for me to be able to like access that and feel like myself like I coming back to dance brought me back to myself in a really big way yeah for those of you that will see the movie you know that the show and the dance and the singing you know that Gabriel is is uh putting the music together that's 
that's like the underlying part of it. But so much of this is like your mental aspect on not only your injury, but the, I, I loved how you wove in um, the home movies that you did. Uh, that was really cool. That, that, that was whoever's idea that was, that was outstanding. You know, the whole thing about your father getting sick and, and those videos of you and your dad when you were a kid. I mean, you can't, there's not a dry eye in the room. And, and so a lot of it uh, was the mental aspect. And at one point I heard you say that you missed the carefree risk taker that you were prior to your accident, but that now that that was starting to change. Uh, I know that I completely miss the spontaneity of my life and not having to plan every bloody thing that I do. And I'm sure you have to plan everything out. It's almost like we live a, a groundhog's day with after you have a spinal cord injury. But um, the yeah. fact that you're that you're coming to grips with that now, it, that came out in the movie. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, I think it's just like been this the Groundhog's Day thing is funny. I like, I'm just going to be totally transparent about how I get stuck in Groundhog's Day sometimes. Like I started doing my bowel program for a while, like every morning. And I was like, this is depressing. Like, this is not going to work for me. I can't, I can't start my day this way every goddamn day. Yeah. And it's like those little, you know, particular things you have to shift in the way that you find your autonomy and your like self and, and in every moment, you know, like I was like, I'm not going to wake up like this. I have to like have like ritual in my morning or like something that's like my own in the morning and, you know, switch things up so that you don't get stuck in this pattern that doesn't feel satisfying right i mean you wake up and it's this it that that movie it's the same thing every day like oh my yeah. gosh but you, you really have to get creative with like okay what what can i do to like switch this up so that i feel some like sweetness in my day like you know i'm gonna have tea or i'm gonna meditate right away before i do all these chores yep. for my care without a doubt yeah um Take me back to the to the core of that question. Yeah, it was about how you missed the carefree risk taker that you were prior right, to the accident. Right, right. But that that was beginning to change for you. It, 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 in the movie, you said it's I'm starting to you know be okay now. It's starting to change a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that like stepping into my artistry again and my really my power in that way, and really working on self love in a in ways that I was like doing exercises like meditation and that were like centered around self-love mm -hmm. um, and like being in the shower and washing my body and like literally saying, I love you to my body. Like all of these things that really were like this, like fake it till you make it, but a, a, a sincere um, effort to create and like foster a sense of love for myself and my body mm -hmm. Um, all of these things like really helped flip me into a place where I felt more connected to myself. And that meant like, yeah, I do feel closer to that risk taker now because I'm stepping into the unknown and into vulnerability and into sharing my story. And, and that feels like very close to the way I used to take risks, but in different ways, you sure. know? Sure. And and it's so rewarding to like see how people react to that and, and relate to it. 
Absolutely. That's such a beautiful thing. You know what else was a beautiful thing that came through in the movie, as I mentioned earlier about the uh, the home videos that you had, but the relationship you had with your father. Um, tell us how that, you know, your relationship has uh, over the years had gone and then to see your dad get sick and then ultimately pass. My dad uh, passed in 2015 and it was it was awful to watch him uh, to, to watch him go. How did your dad yeah. getting sick and fighting like you had to fight through your injury affect you and, and the relationship that you guys had? Oh man. Um, well, I think there were like, it was really hard for my dad to watch me suffer and um, he definitely would celebrate my wins and he's always been my biggest cheerleader sure. and culturally, like he actually was my basketball coach for a short <laughs> amount of time. Yeah. And, um, that's just kind of his nature. Like he's always been like, you can do anything you want. And he's just fierce like that. Like go ask for what you want and go after it. Yeah. And he really instilled that in me. Um, but it, I think like, you know, I, had a drinking problem I was a hot mess before like I got that you know leading up to my injury for years I was bartending I was partying and um and he saw that and warned me and like tried to like you know ex express his concern very candidly like he never sugar-coated shit he always kept it real and I just wasn't there yet like I wanted to take his advice and I I did. I quit bartending because I knew that that was kind of killing me. Mm. Um, but it, you know, it just wasn't like enough in that sense of like what I really needed to change, which was to quit drinking. Sure. Um, and so I think it was really hard for him to be like, I told you know, I told you so, but like obviously he wasn't saying that to me. Yeah. Um, but he was just like, I wanted to protect you, damn it, and I tried, and I think he was mad at me in that way that I didn't listen and and really ultimately he was mad at what my injury had taken from me and the life that he had crafted in his mind yes you know like I wasn't gonna walk down the aisle with him anymore if I got married I was you know I'm sure he wondered if am I gonna be able to live the life that's gonna make me happy anymore and I was actively doing the work and trying to adapt and find myself in this new form and love myself and see my value. And I think it was just a shorter or it was just a, it wasn't as he, well, he wasn't having to do that work. Cause he's not me. Like right. no one's doing the work that you're doing to try to love yourself and move the fuck on and yep. show up and work through ableism and do whatever you need to do to like live your life to the fullest. And so like you have to be a teacher in a lot of ways. And I think with my dad, he was like, really struggling to be like, are you going to be okay? Is this going to be enough for you? Sure. Am I going to have to watch you and think that you're not where, where you want to be and like just deal with the sadness of this forever? Mm -hmm. Like parents, right? They want the best for us. And yeah. They, they, they look out for us as little ones. And then at, at some point they let us go and he was seeing his little girl and, and, and this, all this strife and, and all of a sudden right. this profound and change. And that was like the, Totally. And that was like the difference between him and my mom. My mom was like, 
you're fucking doing it. Like you're finding yourself and you're moving forward and you're being real with your grief at the same time. And like your, you know, your struggles with everything, but like she was just in a different place with how she viewed it or judged it or internalized that pain. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think it created this like kind of wall between us because he didn't want to hurt Absolutely. It was like so painful for him. And that was so painful for me because I was like, I'm right here and I'm still me. Like, why aren't you loving me the way that I feel like you used to? Yeah. Yeah. And then how about watching him when he got sick and and put up that fight? Did, Did that bring you even closer together? I mean, I don't think so. No, I think it was... Now he he was in a place where he was really grieving on his own. And like, mm-hmm. I think he was scared to be vulnerable and bring me into that. Right. In a real way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he was like trying to protect me, trying to protect himself from being emotional about the whole thing. And like, really, you know, there was, there were some walls that had been put up. And sure. He was still like my dad and and we, you know, we still, there was still like that love there that I felt, but it wasn't the way it used to be where I felt like I was like really his girl. Like there was just something off and that was really hard. And actually in the end, I feel like in those last moments that he kind of was having this like, I'm here sort of. Right. A bit of an epiphany Um, at the end, maybe. I think so. Yeah. And I very much felt that after he passed, like I started to like feel and really embody his pain in a way that helped me realize that it wasn't about me. It was about him. Yeah. These spinal cord injuries. Yeah. They, they, it's amazing. They, they affect, um, as I told you, I, I still work in, um, the rehab center where I did mine and I can see, down the hallway where there's a lot of, you know, family members and friends and whatnot. And while their loved one is in, in PT or OT, they're doing their therapy. They all sort of have that same look on their face. Like, can, can someone please get the license plate of the truck that just derailed <laughs> all of our world? You yeah. know, I mean, you and I are in that we're, we're in the, the, um, you know, on the mat, we're getting stretched and we're down in the, with the urologist finding out how our bladder works. And we're talking to the, the therapist. It's crazy. And, yeah, but they're stuck. I mean, they're they're able-bodied and they're back in the room and they're trying to, okay, are we going to get a ramp in the house or how are we going to fix the bloody bathroom to get somebody? Uh-huh. I mean, it's just these things are so all-encompassing. They affect so many people and, you know, a lot of people. Every part of your life. Yeah. And so it's some people can can come around and they're okay with it and other people are just like, I don't know if I can handle this anymore. And so um, the way people because react it's hard. to it, it's it, really hard. It really is. It really <laughs> like is. Like it's hard for people to adapt to like what, how to live this way. And yeah. so like when people are close, that close to you and they have to adapt in order to still be close to you. Some people are like exhausted by that and they don't have the bandwidth and they're like, fuck this. Exactly. And that may make you feel like you're an inconvenience. Yep. Right. Yeah. And it's tough for, for us to have to deal with that. And so. 
Kelsey, yeah. I really wanted to ask you two really cool things about the movie. Tell me the, the, the scene that I really loved, and I went back and watched it a few times because I liked how the music was was fading in and out at the time, was the scene with your friend Gabe's father where he mentions the line from Wendell Berry's poem, uh, the impeded stream is the one that sings. And I went back and thought to myself, what the heck does that mean to me? What does it mean to you? I thought it was amazing. That's my favorite part. <laughs> Boy, I'm perceptive, huh? It's a beautiful scene. It it's is. Like, hats off to our editor, Nico. She's amazing and just crafted this really poetic, beautiful um, marriage of these two messages and like, or this one message, like with that conversation and me finding dance again. And that's what it means to me is like, you go through shit and what you, you find the, the, like, I hate when people say everything happens for a reason. I think it's really insensitive and bullshit I agree because it's like, you have to find the reason and that's really hard work. But I think that's kind of what that the impeded stream is the one that sings. It's like, I'm going to take my pain and I'm going to turn it into something beautiful and I'm going to help. Like, I'm going to share this message with the world and, and just put my bare self out there to like help myself and maybe help other people. Yeah. And do you think that he saw that in his son and also you, is that where that was sort of coming from with him? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And oddly enough, like that fence is my co-director, Daniel Klein. That's his fence. You're kidding. <laughs> no. And he was like walking by it every day and then oh, God. figured out that it was Daniel's and we were like, oh my God, this is so funny and weird. It is. Oh, it was just yeah. meant to be. Yeah. It's like, you're going to go through some bullshit. Yep. But like for Gabriel, like you're going to find who you are despite like the, the impededness or whatever the word is yeah. of your stream. Like you had a vision, you had a path, it's now been obstructed, but you're going to find this like beautiful way around it to still go where you're supposed to go. So deep, huh? Yeah. It's, it's really beautiful. And I love that Matthew and like, just like absorbed that in that way. Yeah. I, as I said, I rewound it and watched it like three or four times. I just thought it was so cool. And, yeah. And I really liked how it affected you. You started to cry. You started to tear up. And and his dad just, you know, he just let it happen. And he just sort of put his arm around you. It was, it was moving. It was, it was a terrific scene. Yeah. He's my buddy. Oh. Yeah. We've, we've all be, become really close with I can imagine. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. Tell us now about another part of the uh, one of the um, main themes of the of the documentary is your quest for um, maybe doing the e-stim. So I, I I love that scene when you met with you mentioned him earlier, Doctor Darrow about maybe doing the clinical trial. You went and spoke with people who had good results from that, and some people who had, you know, not so good results. I was struck by his words. Um, where he said some people can't stand existing without a large amount of hope and that were he in your place, he would do the trial. Um, so I don't know the answer to this, but did have you made a decision? Did you do one of his trials? I didn't do his trial, but I did get a stimulator. I um, 
I was implanted February 13th with Dr. Uzma Samadani okay. out of the Twin Cities. And um, so I'm really just beginning this whole journey. With All that. right. All right. So you, you were implanted on February 13th. And, and what is it, you know, there's so many different things that they can help you with. Um, as far as, are, are you interested in maybe leg movement? I know you talked about maybe wanting to do that. Some batter and blout, uh, bladder and bowel function. Uh, I know sexuality was a big part of, uh, of the documentary BP, your blood pressure. What is the, is the main goal now that you're working with? Um, well, I haven't started PT yet, which okay. is a bummer. Okay. It's hard. I think that's also like one of the interesting sort of flaws in the program or the system is like, you know, we're implanting people, but then, then what? Yeah. Hurry up and wait. Like, yeah. Like this needs to be a, a more thought out um, and funded and planned process so mm -hmm. that people have direction right after they're implanted or soon thereafter. Right. Yeah. So like, I'm kind of on my own right now, left, literally left to my own device, um, figuring out what, how to use this thing. And it's honestly kind of uncomfortable and frustrating, mm. but I'm using the stimulator, um, for bowel function, sexual function. Um, sometimes I'll, you know, put it on and just leave it on all day. I'm like a low setting, so you can't really feel it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm just kind of getting to know this, like a new person living in my house. All right. So, so far, <laughs> so know? good, so I, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, if I'm being totally honest, it's kind of, uh, I'm kind of scared of this thing. Like I've had some like weird spasticity and like a new nerve pain that I'm like, Mm -hmm. wondering is this some pre-existing stuff or is this in combination with the stimulator or is this stimulator? Sure. So I honestly got kind of scared and just stopped and just turned it off for a okay. couple weeks because I was like, I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, I got some like new protocols put on. I'm starting to play with it again. I'm a little scared and like, you know, trepidation I'm moving slowly. Um, but I'm, I'm just kind of like, I have no idea what I'm doing. This is just a weird, it's just a very weird yeah. part of the process, if I'm being totally honest. Sure, sure. I have some friends. In fact, the last interview that I did, it's a great couple. I should uh, send you a link to, uh, to our conversation. There's a young man who was sort of similar injured to yours. He and his family were on vacation in uh, Mexico, and he couldn't wait. They got off the plane. It was like 95 degrees. He went from the hotel directly to the beach and dove straight into a sandbar. And he's now like a C5 quad. And um, yep. long story short, his caregiver couldn't make it one evening. So she sent her friend over and they are now married and they're in the process of trying to have children. She's amazing. She said, I went over that first day and, you know, my friend told me, yeah, you'll just probably have him brush his teeth and, you know, maybe comb his hair. And she said, yeah, there I am putting a suppository in his rear end and we're doing a bowel program. And how's that for a first date, you know? So they're, yeah. but they're married now and he is involved in um, the uh, uh, studies at the University of Louisville. 
um, with the um, E STEM stuff. So he's doing a lot of that there, and she also oh, cool. she now works for the uh, the Reeve Foundation. But um, yeah, he said it's amazing. He's able to turn it up, and it helps him with his blood pressure. Um, he gets sort of dysreflexic sometimes when he's too warm, and he can fix that. And he can do uh, he can do a whole bunch of different things. He said he has it like there's a um, I think there's an almost an app on his iPhone where he's able to to do things. Yeah, back that's and forth. what I do too. Yeah, I should, I should, that's the other thing is like I need to talk to more people about like okay, what protocols are you guys using? How are you using them? Yeah, well, I'm you gonna, know, like. I'm we sure he would love to like talk with you. I, I, I'm going to shoot you his cell phone when we're done because he's cool. a great guy. He and his wife, I mean, they're amazing. You would love their uh, the episode it's I did. The dudes. It's always the dudes that like have a nurse and they get married. It's not I'm never like, oh, yeah, I have this male nurse. <laughs> right? Like, well, I have to tell you, baloney. I'm in this game 31 years now. I could, can't tell you, I threw myself at all of my PTs and OTs, and unfortunately, it hasn't worked for me yet. I, so yeah. I, I don't know what the heck happened. I see some of these guys, and I'm like, how did you make that happen? And she's a beautiful girl. His wife, Hannah, is a beautiful girl, and he's a he's a handsome guy. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, my goodness, he's a like a... A high quad, and and they she fell for them. So somebody told me, John, the heart wants what the heart wants, and so uh, they're together and they're terrific, and they're all over uh, Instagram. They're positively paralyzed is the name of their Instagram. Um, if you oh, want to check yeah. out, oh yeah, I think I I think I've seen them. Some of their mm-hmm. videos, yeah, they're terrific, and so he's involved in all of that stuff at uh, at the University of Louisville. They tell me is how you pronounce that city now. Um, yeah. yeah. And so just to, um, I have a couple more questions for you. I don't want to hold you up any longer. You've been so kind to carve out some time, Kelsey Peterson. Um, tell me not to get too deep again, but towards the end, you said that you were starting to get a little bit closer to, uh, to acceptance and, uh, and the more free you are. So how is that? So, and do you think you'll ever fully accept what has happened? Um, you know, I've, I've like really leaned in to loving and knowing, like really knowing myself mm-hmm. the way that I am right now. Um, I read this book called The Body is Not an Apology, which just really like breaks down these like systems of oppression um, in our culture, like ableism and racism and homophobia that really like help you sort of understand how we view human beings yep. and ourselves. And I've done a lot of work to like, really, and I keep doing it. You know, it's not like I like, I love being disabled. You know, it's like, no, some days this sucks. Some moments <laughs> yeah. of the day this sucks. Yeah. And it's really, and it's always hard. You know, there's always like so many challenges. You, you know, I, I miss life being easy mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things for us is that like we are comparing our lives to what they used to be like. And that's like the thief of joy, right? Yeah. Um, that's one of the hardest things is to like try not to go there Yeah. and to try to be really present with where I'm at. And yes, I will like, I will be curious about functional recovery, you know, mm-hmm. probably always. Um, but I have to like, be realistic and like honest with myself about how 
I want to approach that and how it's going to fit into my life and if it's going to fit into my life. Sure, sure. I was um, I was struck by what you said towards the end. You said some beautiful things have come from this mistake that I've made. And I think we yeah. all sort of, you know, it's like a coming to grips, sort of a come to Jesus moment where I know I will never, I don't think I can fully accept you know, what, what had happened to me because it's like, geez, I had this great body and I could do so much with it. And now um, I don't, that's what I mean. It's like, we're, it's so hard to get out of that comparison mindset. Yeah. We weren't born this way, right? you know? And so that's a big extra challenge of like living with disabilities, Mm -hmm. living with an acquired disability. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're, they're hard in their own way for sure. And I, I completely honor and respect that. Um, I just know my experience more and, um, yeah, I think that I'm, I'm more like acceptance is like, it just a, it's an ebbing and flowing thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the deeper thing for me is like, is self-love Yeah. Without and how doubt. I'm practicing and embodying that. Mm-hmm. Last two questions for me. What's next, Kelsey? Uh, I heard you mentioning before we went on that you're you're in the process of maybe doing another documentary, another movie, uh, maybe opening a dance studio. What is uh, what is next on the docket for Kelsey? So we're still a crippled dance, so we're still in conversation about doing a residency somewhere sometime soon, hopefully. Um, we love this project and want to do it again. And Gabriel's music is, I think, what really makes it unique in that way, makes mm-hmm. us unique. Yep. Um, I think we're the only like company doing what we do. In terms of like we're interable, then we have a live musician. Um, and I'm doing a film, an, another documentary feature um, as uh, under this girl who brought me on, she's she's directed it and really fostered this project. Um, and then I have another short documentary film that I'm that I'm working on as well. Um, so and some other things, you know, in the in the burner. So we'll see what we'll see what happens. You are a very busy woman. I'm amazing. Yeah, very busy. <laughs> and so that will lead me into my last question, and it's one that I ask all of uh, all of my guests who have have had a spinal cord injury and it it's an interesting story. It came, I was waiting in the hallway with a buddy of mine. This is sort of a crazy story. A guy that was one of my good friends in high school, unfortunately, uh, seven or eight years ago, had a terrible spinal cord injury of his own. He was kneeboarding in a lake and didn't want to do it. And everybody told him, you got to do it. You got to try it. It's the last time. So out, he went out and did it and really got wrecked up. But the two of us were waiting in the hallway to see our doctors at, uh, at our uh, rehab center. And I just said, I said, Hey, Tommy, you know, if I could snap my fingers right now, when you would be completely able-bodied again, what's the first thing you would do? And uh, I could see the smoke pouring out of his ears and he waited. He didn't really answer. And then it was cute from behind me. I heard this woman say, I would go out and garden in my garden. I miss it so much. And then a guy in front of me said, I would go out into the garage and tinker with my car. And it was like, wow. I mean, this is pretty profound. People have uh, all have an answer to that. And so I, I put the question to you, Kelsey Peterson, if, if you would be completely able-bodied right now, what's the first thing that you would do? I would have sex, a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first I, time I ever heard that one. 
Really? Yeah. Maybe I'm just a hornball. Oh no, that's a that's a great of it. <laughs> that's a great answer. I had one guy tell me I would stand in front of my toilet and and pee like I used to pee and get it all out. I had yeah, uh, like I would definitely take a nice hot shower by myself afterward. Yeah, that would be. And then I would go dance my ass off. Yeah. To the show. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. There's so many different things. One of my friends told me he would run out the front door butt naked and run down the street. And uh, yeah. another guy said that he would check in into a hotel and get in and out of the bed on his own. And, and like you said, take a shower, then get back in bed and roll around and then get up. And, you know, it's just uh, s- simple things, right, Kelsey? It's the simple things in life that, that we crave and that we miss. It is, yeah. So I'm trying to find new ways to access those pleasures, you know. No and, doubt. Uh, mm-hmm. It's amazing. Well, Kelsey Peterson, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and giving giving me so much of your time. I know you're very busy. And, and like we mentioned, it took a while for us to, to get this on the schedule, but it finally came we together. Yeah. And, and tell the audience where they can find Move Me and, and how they can access that. What's the best way? Yeah, so um, download the PBS video app, pbs.org slash move me, and you will find me and this movie. Um, and follow me on Instagram at move me movie. Um, yeah. And believe me, everyone, you will be moved. It, it certainly moved me. And so again, Kelsey, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. As the old saying goes, good things come to those who wait. While it may have taken us a few months to finally sit down and record this show, Kelsey Peterson, it sure turned out great. Thank you again for joining me today and for creating Move Me, which I urge all of my listeners to see. And as I teased in my opening, we will be busy producing more quality shows here in the next few weeks. First up will be Mark Fugelvand, a C5 incomplete quad who founded the company Abilities, whose vision is to develop helpful and appealing product solutions for individuals with disabilities. And following that, I will have the great pleasure of speaking with and highlighting the story of Dan Rose, a veteran who was injured by an improvised explosive device in southern Afghanistan in 2011. These are episodes I assure you you will not want to miss. Thank you, as always, to my mix master in New York City, Chris Parapesco at Harbor Picture Company. And until next time, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I-